The God who ordained all of that pain come to pass has also come to be with them. They find joy lying in the manger that no grief or pain can take away. He's come for you as well. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and we are on Christmas break here at Stand Firm. So what we're going to do is, for the next three weeks, you'll see the episodes in your feed on Friday mornings as usual, is post a Christmas sermon from each one of us. This week, Matt Kennedy preaches a sermon on Christmas Day 2022. Merry Christmas, and we hope these messages are a blessing to you. Father, we thank you for this great day that we come to celebrate the birth of your son. Uh, we ask that you help us this day to remember him and to keep him uh, in, in the primary place in our hearts and our minds. And I pray that uh, you'll help me as I preach, that I will be able to do so in a way that will uh, glorify your son and make your word clear. I pray this in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, I think it was like Tuesday, uh, Someone say, said, hey, have you, have you checked the weather for, uh, for Christmas weekend? And I hadn't checked the weather. I just assumed it would be fine. Um, I, and I checked it. I'd never heard of a flash freeze. They don't have flash freezes in Texas. It doesn't happen there. And I'd been here for 20 years, and I hadn't seen a flash freeze. But that's what they said was going to happen. They said that uh, uh, salt, the, the, it was going to rain first, and so you're going to have a, 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 a caking or an icing of all the roads, and no one would be able to go anywhere because the temperature would be so low that even the salt wouldn't melt the, melt the ice. And so I was, I was, I was afraid we were going to have to cancel everything. I hate, I hate being at the mercy of the weather. You just don't have that too much in where I was raised. I hate being at the mercy of the weather. And so um, from about Tuesday until yesterday morning, when I realized it wasn't that bad, I was very angry, and I, you should never do this, but I was very angry at God. Don't ever be angry at God. He's always right. You're always wrong. But I was very, I was very angry at God, and I, I said to him in my prayers, why would you do this? I asked him many times, why would you do this? There, there doesn't have to be ice-coated roads the, on Christmas Eve of all days. And on Christmas Day, you, you could bring terrible weather anytime you like. Why would you do it now, Lord? He didn't answer me. He didn't say anything at all. Uh, but here we are. Here we are. All my Christian life, maybe years too, uh, people have told me, God is in control. Don't worry. God is in control. And that's true. Uh, there are, as R.C. Sproul says, no random molecules in the universe. God is sovereign over everything. There's no such thing as chance. But, and maybe this is just me, uh, for me, that's not always a comforting thought. I mean, it is in the long term, because I know that God is good, and everything he does here and now will ultimately work out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. That's Romans 8, 28. It's a coffee cup verse. You've probably heard it before. But I tend to sit with C.S. Lewis, who said, we're not doubting that God will do the best for us. We're wondering 
how painful the best will turn out to be. <laughs> so, because in the short term, in the moment, when you don't know what God is doing or why he's doing it, and even if you do, there is often pain, confusion, heartbreak, the loss of, of things and, and people you love, and there's nothing you can do about it. Things are completely out of your hands. I wonder if, if Joseph felt that way when he heard, verse, 11, verse 1 there in chapter 2, when he heard that in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration where Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Now, if you have any, uh, any uh, historical debates with people, uh, you'll know that the Quirinius was not the one who carried out the particular census that Luke describes. That word first, you see it there in verse 1, can, and many believe, and I agree, should be translated before. So it should be, this was the registration before Quirinius was governor of Syria. Quirinius oversaw registration in 6 AD, much later, and it was bloody. Jewish zealots refused to comply with that particular census, and hundreds were crucified, and everyone remembered that registration. And that's why Luke's saying, hey, this is the registration before the one you all remember, before that famous one. Herod would have been the one to oversee this particular registration. Now, in those days, you see that note there, in those days, that refers back to everything that Luke has recorded back in chapter 1. Uh, Gabriel, in those days, visited the old priest Zechariah in the temple and told him, your wife Elizabeth, who's very old and who up to this point has been barren, is going to bear you a son, and you're going to call him John. Gabriel, in those days, appeared to Mary to say, yes, I know you're a virgin, and yes, you're still going to conceive and uh, have a son, and you're going to call his name Jesus, because he'll save his people from their sins. In those days, Mary went and visited Elizabeth, who happened to be her cousin, and John leapt in Elizabeth's womb, and that was the first proclamation of, of the coming of the Lord and his leaping there. Uh, Mary, in those days, sang her great song called the Magnificat, and then after John was finally born, Zechariah the priest sang his song, which is recorded there also in Luke chapter 1. It's in those days that Caesar Augustus issued his decree. Now, you should note that Luke takes care to pin everything down historically. Many other religions, religions based on principles and ideas and spiritual disciplines do not depend on historical events. But the Christian believes God entered into human history as a human being in a real time and in a real place. Everything in the Christian faith hinges on what Jesus of Nazareth has done in history. So all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they'll all tell you the who and the what and the where's of the events they record. And you can go back and check. Was, was there really a, a Roman 
procurator named Pontius Pilate. Did the Sadducees and the Pharisees really believe the things that the Bible says they believed? Uh, do the place names and the travel distances and the customs and the cultures the New Testament records, do all those line up with what we know about the first century? And the answer to all those questions is, is a sure yes, they do. The New Testament is uniformly accurate about these things to the disappointment of those who wish otherwise. And that accuracy means that when you come to things you might otherwise dismiss as fairy tale, as overactive imagination, in isolation, like a virgin conceiving and giving, giving birth while still a virgin, well, they can't be dismissed. I mean, if the Gospels were filled with elves and dwarves and gnomes and all kinds of fairies and things like that, then maybe you could dismiss these accounts. But the Gospels are not filled with that kind of thing. They're genuine historical narratives, and they're precisely accurate when it comes to the details. So when you read that a virgin has conceived, the only reason you have to dismiss it out of hands is if you've already decided beforehand, when you, before you even come to the Gospels, that God doesn't exist, and so miracles are impossible, or that he can't intervene into history, and so uh, he, he, this couldn't be possible. But in either case, your problem is your philosophy. It's not the Gospels. Now, uh, notice that, that uh, Augustus there, his real name is Gaius, not quite as cool as Gaius Octavius, not quite as cool as Augustus. He was Julius Caesar's grandnephew, and he was a great emperor, as emperors go. Under Octavian, Augustus, you could, you could travel for the first time from Rome east through Turkey, south through Samaria and Judea, and west through Egypt and northern Africa, on foot, safely, without ever leaving the boundaries of the empire. Never happened before. He built roads, excellent roads. Some of them are still around today without potholes. They're still there. Connecting the entire, the entire empire to Rome. He, he cleared the Mediterranean Sea of pirates that had been uh, oppressing people for, for centuries, he op- or years. He opened Egypt, which, is, which became the breadbasket of the ancient world for trade. And so during his, his, his reign, wine, grain, and new oil increased everywhere. There had never been such an emperor And so the Roman Senate gave him that name, Augustus, which had only been given to gods before. And so when Augustus speaks, he's a great emperor. When Augustus speaks, nations move. It's such a simple thing for for an emperor like Augustus to issue a decree. It takes only his will and his voice. Everyone else has to do all the work. Governors, magistrates, puppet kings like Herod have to carry out his will, and then uh, all the people within his realm, uh, millions of people have to obey what he says. And that's what we read there in verse 3, that all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now, Romans didn't require everyone to go to their own town to register for these kinds of things, but some regions in the empire did. There's record of Egyptian uh, people being required to go to their hometowns to register. Augustus has said, hey, I want you all to be registered. The local rulers or magistrates determined how they would be registered. So probably Herod 
Herod the Great, added this requirement for some reason. We can we don't really know about what reason, but he did that probably add this requirement. What a burden, though. Uh, we, our church is in a part of the diocese of the living word, and it's an affinity diocese. And that means that it's not organized by geography, by the, the churches being around us, but by theo theological like-mindedness. And that's great. But we all, that means we have churches in New York and in California and in Florida, all over the country, vast distances apart. And we have to meet twice a year in person, face to face. So one of those meetings is great. It's in the spring. We meet in Pennsylvania, which is not that difficult. But the other meeting, it's in Florida. That's in the fall. And Florida is very nice. I like Florida fine, but it's a long way to go. And the diocese does not pay for our travel expenses. That's not, the diocese doesn't pick up the dime for that. Now, I don't blame the bishop, especially if he's listening to this. I, I love the bishop. He's great. I don't blame the bishop uh, for this. Uh, we, ha we have to meet. Um, and, and someone's going to have to travel to do, to do that, a long way to do that. But at the same time, everything gets interrupted. I have to take time away from my work here. And then I have to desperately catch up when I get back. So when the time rolls around every year, I, I complain, I grumble, I'm, I'm very irritated, and I express that to various people in quiet and quiet places. Um, but I'm not, never taken by surprise by this requirement. It comes up every year. I know it's coming. And the travel really only takes one day there and one day back, and I get to sit in a nice cushioned seat. Maybe I don't have enough leg room, but it's a nice cushioned seat. In this case, nobody's expecting this. Nobody's expecting this registration. It probably was the first one of this sort ever required. The empire doesn't pay travel expenses for people to go to their hometown. And many, and Joseph is included in this, have to go more than 50 miles on foot. Days, weeks away from home and employment. And, and why? What, what, what's the purpose of it? What is the registration about anyway? Well, it's, a, it's so that you can be enrolled in the tax rolls. You have to go all that way at your own expense and take all that time off of your work so that Rome knows who you are and they can tax you. And nevertheless, we read in verse 4 that Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered. So Joseph, we know he's a carpenter, probably that means a stone worker. Joseph has to set down his work. He has to set down his livelihood. It takes a good four days to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem on foot so that he can be registered to help fund the empire. But there's nothing he, can, nothing he can do about it. Caesar decreed it. Joseph has no choice. He's helpless. But it's here, at, of all places, that Luke introduces Joseph's house and his lineage. Joseph has to go to the city of David, which is Bethlehem, because he is of the house of David. That means he's in David's family. Now, if you go back and you read uh, 1 to 2 Samuel, you'll see that David had seven wives, 
and lots of concubines. So being part of David's family wasn't necessarily unique. There were lots of people probably part of, of, of David's family. But that's why Luke adds lineage there. And that's to say, Joseph isn't just related as part of David's house, but he's David's heir. He's, he's David's royal descendant. He is the rightful king of Israel. But here he is, going where he's told to go. Now, had Israel in the past remained faithful, no Roman emperor, no Syrian, no Herod would ever presume to issue commands to David's heirs. But Israel wasn't faithful. She loved other gods who were no gods at all, and so God gave her over and her kings with her to subjugation. And this is a principle that we can all see individually in our own lives. When you go after and insist on having something or someone God says that you should not have, and you refuse to listen to him when he says, don't do that, turn back, sometimes God, because he loves you, gives you over to the consequences of that pursuit. And ultimately, when you get the thing you think you so wanted, it turns to ashes in your mouth. Now, that's, that's discipline, but it's also mercy. If he didn't love you, he'd let you go without consequences, but he loves you. Israel refused to turn from the false gods of the other nations, and so God handed Israel over to the nations. That's why Rome issues decrees, and David's heir, great King David's heir, must obey. Now, Joseph knows his Bible well enough to know all of this, and he knows uh, that Augustus wouldn't be able to issue any decree had God not in some way ordained it, because he also believes that God's in control. So however frustrated Joseph may be, he lets go of his work and he submits himself to what God has set out for him. And that's just the same, it's the kind of thing that Joseph does. Gabriel, remember, told Joseph, take Mary to be your wife because her child is from the Holy Spirit. And so he did, he just did. Imagine what people would have thought of him. She cheated on you, they would have thought. She's an adulteress. She's carrying another man's baby. Are you a fool? The whole thing would have been a great shame and would have brought great ridicule down on, on Joseph's head. But God told him to do it, and so he did it. He took the shame. It must have been terribly painful. Why would, why would God do things this way? You may have wondered, like we often do. Why doesn't God, in this particular case, if I were Joseph, the question that would be at the forefront of my mind is, why doesn't God tell more people what he's doing? Because God could have sent Gabriel to the center of Nazareth with a big trumpet to blow the trumpet and say, oh, Mary's not been immoral. She's got the Son of God in her womb. 
But he didn't do that. Why would God let the mother of his son be so dishonored and now thrust out onto the road? Joseph, after all, doesn't go to Bethlehem alone, but we're told, verse 5, with Mary, his betrothed, who is with child. I mentioned a minute ago, Nazareth to Bethlehem is about a four days journey at a normal walking pace, but, but Mary is likely close to full term, so they're not making 20 miles a day. It's going to be a little bit longer. Why take Mary? The registrations that the Romans had and the, the various regional magistrates didn't require wives to go along with their husbands or women to register at all unless they were a single person who owned property. And that's not Mary. Well, the people in Nazareth, and not just the people, but Mary's friends and Mary's family, uh, this is a, a small village, Nazareth is a small village, and everyone is related in some way. She's grown up there. They all think she's an adulteress. And in fact, that doesn't ever go away, because later on, when Jesus visits his hometown, Nazareth, to preach, they call him the son of Mary, which to us doesn't sound all that in interesting, but it's an insult, because usually in that culture, you'd call someone by your dad's name, by their dad's name. They're calling him by his mother's name, which they're trying to say, nobody knows who your daddy is. So, so Joseph doesn't leave Mary with those people. They all go, to, they go together. It must have been a lonely trip. And then now here's what you think about this again. Joseph and Mary aren't doing anything wrong. They're doing exactly what God has told them to do. They're, they're, they're bearing God's son. Now, when painful things happen to me, and maybe to you, I don't know, uh, Sometimes Christians will say things like, I must be outside of God's will. There must be something wrong here because the, the doors are closing and this is very painful and very difficult, so I better jump out and do something else. I hope you don't ever think that way because you serve a crucified Messiah who says, take up your cross and follow me. His way is the only way, and it's a very good way, uh, that will one day bring unspeakable joy for you. But he says, in this world, he makes this promise, in this world you will have trouble. Believe him. You will. And let the trouble, whatever it might be for you, let the trouble do its work, which is to turn your hope from the things of this world which cannot help you in a lasting way to Christ, who is your great help now and forever. Now, now notice that, that through the decree of Caesar Augustus and its implementation, through the, the contempt that Nazareth has for Mary, and, and, and by Joseph's willing submission to Augustus' decree and his love for his, his, his bride, God uses all of these things to bring his unborn son to Bethlehem, just as he said to the prophet Micah. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, 
who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Now, many years before this, God brought a widowed Moabitess named Ruth to himself in faith. But then he took her to, to Bethlehem, and she caught the eye of a man named Boaz, and she bore, ultimately, Boaz a son named Obed, who had a son named Jesse, who had a son named David. But David, if you know his story, David wasn't from of old. He was born, he died. His days were short. But David's heir here comes to Bethlehem, Mary with him, and she bears one without beginning or end, from of old. Her son is a man, but he doesn't come from the dust, nor is his heart bent inward. The first man was taken from the dust and the woman from the man, and together with us involved, they ruined themselves in all things. But in the woman, Mary, God creates and then joins himself to a new sort of man, a new Adam. And the Lord, whose coming forth is from of old, will make all things new. Such is his love for you, such is God's love for you, for all creation, for sinners like me and you, that he has come to undo what you and I have done. Death, corruption, wickedness, all the things that make trouble in this world, he will trample them under his feet, along with Satan and his demons. He's done it by his cross, he's done it by his blood, he's done it by his resurrection, and he'll do it by his coming again. And he'll establish a kingdom that will never pass away. Purity will cleanse corruption, goodness will overcome evil, God will rescue his bride, that's us. He will rescue his bride from contempt and clothe her in glory. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. That's Mary. And they gave, she gave birth to her firstborn son. And this is the last verse it will cover. Notice how simple this description is. How few details. How long was Mary in labor, we might ask? We have no idea. Uh, what was it like in Mary's heart when she first held her, her son Jesus in her arms? That's the kind of thing that 21st century people want to know. We, we, have, we want pages about how she's feeling about the whole thing. We don't get any of that. Luke's account almost certainly comes from Mary. And Mary, being a woman of her time, wouldn't share the details of her birth, of the birth of Jesus, and the birth, what the experience was like with a, with a man. He just, she just wouldn't do that, and he wouldn't press her for the details. The Holy Spirit here has caused to be written what you need to know. Mary gave birth to her firstborn son. And we might ask, and we should ask, why this way? Why the trouble of conception, of labor, and of birth? 
why not arrive as a grown man rather than go through the process of birth and nursing and potty training and all the kinds of things that, that God as man had to go through. Well, if you and I were born innocent, without any sin, if my sin, if the things that I do bad were, were caused by bad influences out there, then, yeah, that would have been fine for God to come as a full-grown man and die in our, in our place. But the problem is that the ruin lies within. I don't sin because someone tempts me. Temptations would never work if I did not love myself in my way over God and His. So if that is going to be healed, redemption has to begin at the beginning, in the womb, at conception. God took on human flesh and human nature to remake you in his image, in the image of Christ, from the inside out. His work begins in your soul, but he'll complete that work in your body by raising you from the dead. Even more, he'll restore everything the stars, the planets, the world. He'll remake everything sin has ruined, but with even greater beauty than, than at first. Since even the potential for sin, that the possibility of death will be removed in those days. And then the dwelling place of God will be with man, and every sorrow will flee away forever. But for now, Mary wraps the baby in swaddling clothes and lays him in a manger because there was no room or no place for them in the inn. Mothers wrapped their babies in tightly, tightly in linen cloth at swaddling. The word for inn there is cataluma. It means guest room. Luke uses it for the upper room later. There's another specific word for inn or hotel, and Luke uses that. Luke uses that elsewhere, but this is probably a guest room. There was no room in the guest room, is what Luke is saying. So they were staying in someone's house. Usually guest rooms are built above the common room, where families in the common room would cook and store food and, and, and feed for animals. And the animals would be kept outside or out in the compound, just outside the common room. So, so many of these rooms, these common rooms, had feeding troughs, so the manger is, built into the windows to feed the animals. So Mary gives birth to Jesus, probably in this common room, and wraps him in linen and lays him down with her own hands in a manger, in a feeding trough. God, who has set all of these things into motion, who has ordained that Mary conceive and that Joseph take her as his wife and raise the child as his own, who has through all of this set them in a place of grief and shame, who ordained that Augustus give his decree and send them with great trouble far from home, the God who ordained all of that pain come to pass has also come to be with them. They find joy lying in the manger that no grief or pain can take away. He's come for you as well. In this world, yes, you will have trouble, but take heart, Jesus says, for I've overcome the world. This Jesus, son of David, son of God, who gives his own body as food for his sheep, 
finds his first bed in a manger. It's a low and humble place. Many years later, Mary will watch as strange men take her son's battered, bloody body down from the tree, bathe his torn flesh. She'll watch them wrap him in linen clothes and lay him down on a stone bed. Until before dawn on the third day when he, by the strength of his own arm, puts death to death, wresting creation from the grip of corruption, bringing his people life, and then ascending to heaven, from which one day he'll return. Every king, every empire will fall before him. He'll bring true peace. He'll bind up what you and I have broken, and he'll make all things new. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We celebrate the birth of your Son, our King, our Lord, and our Savior. Um, I ask, Lord, that you help us to uh, be thankful, grateful, and to celebrate this wonderful day in which you have brought uh, uh, salvation to light in the birth of your Son. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.